0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. All right, uh, open your Bibles, please, to the book of Mark, chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are paperback Bibles underneath chairs, and uh, as I always say... And in particular, with this chapter, I just think it'd be super helpful if you had a a Bible open before you, because we look at the text in some detail, and I think you would find it a little more engaging if you had a Bible open. So, it's on page 496 of the paperback Bibles uh, that you find underneath your chairs. Mark 13, we'll be looking at verses 28 to 37. You might know that it's hurricane season now, I think that kind of goes on through uh, November, and... Pretty much with every hurricane season, you'll, you'll hear stories about some people who are there uh, on, on the beach area or a coastal town of some sort, and they, they hear of the hurricane coming, and there might even be a mandatory evacuation, but there's always some people who won't leave. Right? They just they hunker down, and they board up their windows, and they just say, we're not going anywhere, and they try to weather the storm. And uh, sometimes, you know, honestly, it works out okay, but, but not always. Sometimes people lose their property. Sometimes people lose their lives when they refuse to evacuate. And I, I think, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but sometimes I find it a little hard to sympathize with people in that situation because they are people who failed to act in the present based on what they knew would happen in the future. When you know what's going to happen in the future, it should impact the way we behave in the present. So, we're looking at Mark 13 here, and we are in the third of three sermons on this chapter. We're going through the entire book of Mark, but for these last three Sundays, we have been considering Jesus in the future in, in three parts, so we're concluding this today. Mark 13, Jesus in the future, part three, and we have been considering um, Jesus' predictions um, about the future with relation to two events primarily. One would be the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which occurred in AD 70, and the other event is the return of Jesus at the end of the age. And uh, if you haven't heard the previous two sermons, I I hope you'll be able to follow me today, but I would recommend that maybe you you listen to those. That'll kind of get you up to speed. Those are available at our website, but I will be assuming some things today based on what we've talked about in, in the past. But as we consider these topics about the future, and the theological word for this is eschatology, kind of the study of future things, the study of end times, as we consider eschatology, it's really easy to get caught up in the details, caught up in the the debate, the discussion, the, the analysis of the text, and forget that what Jesus says about the future is intended to impact how we behave in the present. If the things we're talking about here do not have any effect on how we live later this afternoon and tomorrow morning and next Friday, we're not getting it. We're not understanding the text. When the Bible tells us about the future, it's intended to impact how we live in the present. And so, as we finish here in chapter 13, we're looking at two illustrations. Jesus ends this chapter with two kind of stories, two illustrations that pretty much sum up everything that He's been talking about through this chapter. And so, if you're able to stand, would you do that please now and let me read the conclusion of Mark 13 starting with verse 28. Okay, starting with verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things Taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep and what i say to you i say to all stay awake holy spirit would you please open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word this morning in jesus name amen you may be seated <clears throat> all right so what do we make of of this text as it concludes this um, difficult chapter 13 in in mark Two things here that I hope will impact us right now in the present. The first thing that we want to look at is is this. The text tells us to be assured that Jesus' word will come true. Be assured, count on it, it's going to happen. Jesus' word will come true. So, the difficulty of this chapter, as I have been stating through these three sermons, is that it seems like Jesus is referring to these two different events. The destruction of Jerusalem, AD 70, and his second coming at the end of the age. But the difficulty is trying to figure out what parts are talking about which event. And and that's where we find a lot of disagreement. There there are theologians who agree on just about everything, but when they get to this chapter, they, they differ on what parts are referring to the temple and what parts are referring to the second coming. Last week, the argument I made was that verses 5 through 23 were all referring to the destruction of the temple. And that might have occurred to you as a bit of a surprise, because many of the verses we look at in that section, we have thought have referred to the second coming. But I think verses 5 through 23 are about the destruction of the temple, and the reason is pretty simple, because if you look at verse 4 of chapter 13… The disciples say, when will these things be, and what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? And it's very clear that when the disciples mention these things, they're referring to what Jesus had just said in verse 2, that every stone that is part of the temple will come down upon itself. Notice what the temple is going to come down. And so when the disciples ask, when will these things take place, beginning in verse 5, Jesus is answering that question. So He's not talking about the second coming. He's talking about the destruction of the temple. I I think that's pretty clear. But the case I made last week was that starting in verse 24, the topic shifted. And in verse 24, Jesus began to talk about His second coming. And again, last week I talked about that. I would refer that to you to get the details of that argument. But today, what I want to argue is that when we get to verse 28, the topic is shifted again, and that Jesus in verses 28 to 31 is talking again about the temple, not the second coming. And there's basically two reasons, again, there's a lot of reasons, I don't have time to get into them all, but I'm going to give you two reasons why. One reason is because of the nature of this illustration. I told you Jesus talks about two illustrations here. The first illustration has to do with this fig tree, right? Verse 28, from the fig tree learn its lesson. Now, do you remember the last time we heard about a fig tree in our study of Mark? You might recall that that was in chapter 11. And Jesus and His disciples came upon a fig tree, and Jesus noticed that there was no fruit on the tree And he cursed the tree. And then a little while longer, we heard that Jesus and the disciples came by that same fig tree, and the disciples looked at it and said, hey, look at that. The the tree is withered. It's been cursed, just like you said, Jesus. You cursed the tree, and exactly what you said happened, happened. So those are two, two situations in chapter 11. But what's right in between those two accounts was Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Mark is positioning these stories for a particular reason. He talks about the fig tree. He shows Jesus going into the temple to judge it, to cleanse it. And then, right after that, there is a follow up to the fig tree illustration. In other words, the point is this just as there was no physical fruit on that tree, and that tree deserved to be judged, so there is no spiritual fruit in the temple, and so the temple deserves to be judged. That's the point and it all resol- revolves around this, this fig tree example. And so, here's Jesus refer- returning to the fig tree. It just seems natural that if He's bringing that illustration up again, probably referring to the temple again. And so, His point here in verses 28 and 29 is, you look at a fig tree, you see it's tender, Uh, You see it has leaves. You know that summer is coming. So, there's a sign there that the summer is is coming. And so, he says in verse 29, so when you see all these things taking place, I think here he's referring to that abomination of desolation back in verse 14. Again, I refer you to last week's sermon. And I think he's saying when you see that happen, when you see that sacrilegious, outrageous thing occur in the temple, you know that this place is about to come down. The abomination of desolation is a sign, just as the fig tree and its leaves are, are a sign. And so I think that's one reason why Jesus here is talking about the temple. But here, here's the other reason. is if you look at verse 30, and, and by the way, let me just say this before I forget. <clears throat> um, it, it does say here in verse 29, "So also when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near. And so, that does make it sound like it's talking about the second coming, right? Because it's talking he, personal pronoun here, perhaps referring to the coming of of Jesus. Actually, the the translation there can say he, and it can say it as well. Um, NIV, New King James Version, both translate that as it. It can go either way. So, it can say it is near, and it can say he is near. So, I wouldn't hang too much on that particular wording. But here's the other re- reason why I think this is referring to the temple. If you look at verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, look at what Jesus is saying here. This generation, the generation of people here in my time during this um, all of it discourse that I am giving will not pass away until all these things happen. In other words, these things I'm talking about will occur before all of you die." That's what he's saying. These things are going to happen in your lifetime, not sometime in the distant future. So, it can't be referring to the second coming because the second coming hasn't happened yet, right? It didn't happen during their lifetime. It hasn't happened in our lifetime or any of the lifetimes between them and us. We're still waiting for that to happen. This generation will not pass away. It seems very clear that Jesus here is talking about contemporary events to him, which would include the destruction of the temple. This is really important for us to understand because the implications are are quite serious for some. Uh, There's a man named Bertrand Russell, he's one of the most famous atheists, who was, uh, in the last several centuries, uh, died in 1970, and um, he wrote a book that was published in 1957, and the title of the book was, Why I Am Not a Christian. He just laid out the case, why he doesn't accept Christianity. And there are a number of reasons given, but one of his major objections is that Jesus, in His analysis of the New Testament, He believed that Jesus predicted that His second coming would occur before the death of the people living at His time. He looked at this text in particular, and He understood what Jesus to be saying here in verse 30 is that He was talking about His second coming, and then He concluded, well, Jesus didn't come and all those people died. Jesus is wrong. It was a criticism of the reliability of Jesus' Word. The word that He used was unwise. Jesus must have been very unwise, He said, because He said He'd come back before these people died, and He didn't. But, but here's the problem, friends. There are different ways of looking at this. Jesus was not talking about His second coming. He was talking about something that would occur in His generation, and the very clear, plausible way to make sense of it is that He was talking about a contemporary event the destruction of the temple. And as I've told you in this sermon series, that absolutely happened. It was a historical event in A.D. 70. The Romans came in, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, just as Jesus predicted. Bertrand Russell was wrong. Jesus Christ is right, and He's always right, and His Word always comes true. And that's why Jesus goes on to say here at the end, verse 31, He just ties it up almost like He had Bertrand Russell in mind. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What Jesus is saying here is that His Word, the words of God that we have in Scripture, are so stable, so immovable, so enduring, so eternal, so permanent, that it's more likely that the entire universe will collapse than that one of Jesus' words would not come true. That's the point. Friends, it is always worth your time to give yourself to the Word of God. It is always worth your time to read it and to study it and to meditate on it and to memorize it and to think about it and to talk to your friends about it and to cherish it and to bring it to your mind when you wake up, and bring it to your mind when you go to bed. It is the Scriptures that will give you hope, they will make you wise, they will instruct you, and they will tell you about what Jesus Christ has done to save sinners. And it's the only place you're going to learn that. It's in the Scriptures. So be assured, my friends, Jesus' words will come true. Isaiah 40 says this, the grass withers, the flower, flower fades, but the Word of God will stand forever. Give yourself to the Word. His Word will come true. Second thing, be assured that Jesus' Word will come true, but secondly, be alert because Jesus Himself is coming again. And so, this is what Jesus talks about in the second illustration in verses 32 to 37. And so, here, Jesus moves from the story of a fig tree, and now He moves and tells this story of a doorkeeper who is keeping watch on a house while the owner or the master of the house is away. And so, very simple story. You see it here starting in verse 34. And he says, it's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work. So, got to have somebody care for his property. And he gives a very specific command to the doorkeeper there at the very end of verse 34. He tells the doorkeeper, stay awake, or be alert. Stay awake, be alert. Why? Because there's no way to know when the master of the house is going to come, verse 35. And he gives a few examples here. These terms seem rather simple, but they actually had significance uh, in Jesus' day, He says uh, the master of the house might come in the evening, that would be considered somewhere between 6 and 9 p.m., or He might come at midnight, which actually included like 9 p.m. till, till midnight. He might come uh, when the cock crows, which would have been midnight till about 3 a.m., or He might come in the morning, which would have been considered about 3 to 6 a.m. So, these are all times people tend to be asleep, right? Right? And the Master could come at at any one of those times. And so Jesus' emphasis here, the meaning of the story is, be awake, be alert, watch out, pay attention, because nobody knows. Verse 32 is how he begins it. concerning that day or hour, no one knows. No one knows when this is going to happen. Don't let it be found that you're asleep when the Master comes back, when Jesus comes again. (laughs) So yes, I think that in these final verses, Jesus is shifting the topic once again, and that what we're hearing here is a description of His second coming. So, why do I say that? Why do I think He's shifting back to the second coming? And I think the reason here is pretty simple, because when Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, He's always saying, when the sign happens, you know what to do. The temple's about to be destroyed. Run for the hills. Get out of here. It's going to happen." There was an emphasis on the ability to know when it was going to happen. But the emphasis in verses 32 to 37 is an emphasis on an inability to know. It's very different. It would seem that Jesus would be contradicting Himself if He said, well, you can know when Jesus is coming, but nobody knows when Jesus is coming. You can know when the temple is going to be destroyed, because when that abomination of desolation happens, the temple's going to come down. But when it comes to the second coming, we, we don't know. We don't know. And so, that's why I, I think, and if you look at verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all. And so, again, this is something Jesus is saying to more than just His disciples, but to everyone, and that is you and me included. Stay awake. There's also a similarity, I think, in language between this And what we read in 1 Thessalonians 5, here's Paul's description. 1 Thessalonians is all about what? Second coming of Christ. That's what that letter is devoted to. And so, Paul says this, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. We don't know when. While people are saying there is peace and (coughs) security… Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober." See the similarity between Paul's language here and Jesus' language in Mark 13? Paul is talking about the second coming. I think Jesus also is talking about the second coming here in verses 32 to 37. Now, I just want to pause here just for a moment because some of you might think, man, this, is like, this sounds this is complicated. All these different verses and all of these references and the topic keeps shifting. I just want to remind you <laughs> that Mark 13 is the most difficult chapter in the book of Mark. Uh, not all the Bible is this challenging to understand. But I'll also tell you this, Proverbs 25.2 says, it's the glory of God to conceal things and it's the glory of kings to search them out. So, some things are hard to understand, but you know what? It's the glory of kings to put forth the work to understand it. So, what we're doing here together this morning is the work of kings and queens. We're seeking something out that is a little bit challenging to understand. And I say that partly to get you ready for another problem that we have to deal with in this text, because look what it says in verse… 32, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. The Son doesn't even know? Jesus Himself doesn't know when He's coming back? Is that what this is saying? I thought you guys were always talking about Jesus being God. So, Jesus is God, but He doesn't know the future? Is that what you're saying? I mean, it's it's a difficult question that comes forth with with this text the answer is this yes jesus is god but jesus is also a man he's also human he has taken to himself all the limitations of a real human being and that includes a limited human mind his human mind was limited in what it knew remember in luke chapter 2 we're told that uh, Jesus was sitting there in the temple, and he He was learning. Luke 2 tells us that He increased in wisdom, that He grew in knowledge. Just like any human being, we have a limited amount of understanding. You might say, well, doesn't that mean that He's prone to error? Well, no. I mean, I don't know everything, but I can say some true things, And you can too. You don't know everything, but you can say some things that are 100% accurate. You don't have to know everything to say things correctly. So we don't have to doubt that Jesus somehow is prone to error because of this. We can just rejoice that Jesus took on humanity and all the weaknesses that came with it for our salvation. That's what's happening here. I think a guy named uh, Joel Beakey sums this up well. <clears throat> this is worth, I think, taking a picture of and uh, reflecting on later to kind of explain this. Beakey says, Christ's limited human mind was united to the person of the Son, that's, that's the eternal second person of the Trinity, the divine second person of the Trinity. His limited human mind was united to the person of the Son who perfectly knew all things in His divine nature and shared with His human nature. All it needed by the Holy Spirit to perform the Father's will flawlessly, but in a truly human way with finite (laughs) or limited understanding. All of this is what makes Jesus a perfect Savior for you and me. God and man and being a man, He carried with Him a limited understanding. But, friends, let's not get too distracted by the theoretical and theological objections. The point of the text is clear. It could not be more obvious. Be alert. Be awake. It's repeated four times. Look with me, verse 33. um, Be on guard. Keep awake. Look at verse 34, the very end. Stay awake. Verse 35, therefore, stay awake. At the end of verse 37, concluding the whole chapter, stay awake. And so, how does this apply to us? I think there are two things that that we can say in response to this. And and the first is simply this, work hard. Work hard. The, The reason I say that is because some people might conclude That because we know Jesus is coming in the future to end all things, that means I don't have to bother with anything in the present. (laughs) That what I do in my day in life now doesn't matter. Jesus is coming to end it all. But I think what the Scriptures would say is, no, work hard. Pursue excellence in everything that you do, whether you are an employee or a boss or a student or a stay-at-home parent, work hard. This was the problem in the uh, Thessalonian church that Paul wrote those epistles to, because a lot of them were expecting Jesus to come very soon, and they were beginning to just give up on their daily responsibilities. And those letters are about Paul correcting that error. And so, let me (coughs) quote this from 2 Thessalonians 3. He says, "'We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness.'" and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. What Paul is saying here is that we have a right to be provided for because of the ministry of the gospel that we're doing, but we worked anyway, is what he's saying. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living." There's no excuse for a Christian to be lazy. Even though Jesus might come tomorrow, if Jesus comes tomorrow, you want Him to find you working, not being negligent in your responsibilities. Work work hard. But the second thing here is, is this, fight apathy. Do not be found in a spiritual slumber when Jesus comes again. And this is a temptation for all of us, isn't it? We just naturally go astray and our hearts grow cold toward the things of the gospel. We're apathetic about it, and we get distracted and we start to fall asleep spiritually. You don't want to be asleep spiritually when Jesus comes again. Stay awake. Do what you can to rouse yourself. You know, what do you do if you're sleepy and you got to stay awake because someone's giving you a responsibility, you know, what do you do? You you don't lie down on the couch. You, You get up on your feet. That's going to help you stay awake. You might drink a cup of coffee. That's going to help you stay awake. You might slap yourself in the face so that you'll stay awake. You've got to take responsibility to keep yourself spiritually awake. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we come here every Sunday morning, why it's so important for you to be here. We join together with the family of God. We sing songs of praise. We hear the Word preached. We take the sacraments. We hear the gospel. This is the way God keeps you awake. And if you're away from church for weeks at end, you're going to fall asleep. Devote yourself to the study of Scripture, as we have already said, to devote yourself to prayer. There's so many options, too, with podcasts. There's just endless numbers of podcasts, Christian podcasts that you can listen to, while you're riding your bike or washing the dishes, things that will edify you and encourage you. And I would encourage you also to read Christian books and to read biographies in particular. I mean, I'm speaking from my own personal experience, but when you read about godly people so full of love for the gospel, and when you read about what they did with their lives in service to the kingdom, you can't fall asleep when you're reading that kind of stuff. Uh, John Piper has a series. It's a series called Swans Are Not Silent, and there's like six different books in the series. Each book has about three or four mini-biographies of great Christian leaders throughout history. So, they're, they're not huge books. It's not a lot to read, but you'll learn a lot about the mighty work that God has done through His servants over the history of the church. I'd highly recommend these books to you. The series is called Swans Are Not Silent. The books all have different names. The series, just Google that or go to Amazon, type that in, and you'll find it. So stay awake, stay awake. Uh, Friends, as we conclude here this morning and and finally get through uh, chapter 13, uh, let me just remind you of this. I started the sermon talking about what to do when a hurricane comes, but, you know, friends, there is a kind of a hurricane coming. There is a kind of a hurricane coming. It's the hurricane of God's wrath on the last day when Jesus comes on the clouds in power and in glory, when the master of the house comes home. Are you ready for that day? You've been told what's going to happen in the future. How will that impact you right now? The first thing to do, if you haven't already, the first thing to do, is to repent of your sins and turn to Jesus and receive Him as your Savior and receive from Him the pardon, the forgiveness, the grace that He offers you in the gospel. As Pastor Brian said earlier, has nothing to do with what you do. You can't earn it. All you can do is receive it. So repent, receive Jesus as your Savior, and you will be ready on the last day. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word Even though sometimes, Lord, Your Word perplexes us, um, we thank You that Your Spirit gives us illumination, and we pray that You would help us to handle accurately Your Word, to understand what You're saying, and to always respond in faith and obedience in the present according to what You have promised to do in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.